Confessions are the matter of the faith once for all delivered. And this is a faith that's confessed uh, by all believers in all times around the world. Bovcast. 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 This is the Bovcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Hey there, Bob Squad. It's us, your neighborhood-friendly podcast, and we are here with episode 44, and we is me, Caleb Castro, and I'm here with... Is this where I'm supposed to talk? If you want to. You could oh. just also leave us, like, a silent space for the next uh, 25 minutes. Eh, I mean, worse things have happened. And I'm Andrew Smith. Well, tote zines. <laughs> <laughs> episode cut. And, oh... Now, we're, we actually do have things to talk about today. Um, I don't know if we're going to talk about them well, but we are going to talk about them, and you are hopefully going to listen. Probably won't. Yeah. If you've made it through this intro, you are going to keep going. We are going to be talking about Scripture and Confessions again. Isn't that exciting? Again? Again! There was another episode on this. Well, isn't that a thing? It is a thing, and we're going to be saying more things and stuff. You said, you know, the cans of Dort came about as another confession in response to a controversy dispute regarding confessions. Can or should we make new confessions today in this age? I suppose it is theoretically possible that we might need to make new confessions or amend the existing confessions. In fact, we even have historical precedent for amending the confessions. So, for instance, both the Westminster Standards... And the Belgic Confession have been amended regarding matters of the civil government as they were originally written. They were written in the context of state churches. They were written well before the American Revolution and other developments in civil government where governments became republics and became representative and just an entirely different, previously unheard of type of government. And so the confessions have been amended to accommodate a world where state churches aren't really a thing anymore. And another example from the Belgic Confession specifically is that as originally drafted, it said that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. We don't really know if Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. I mean, early on, it was widely held. It was consensus by the church that Paul did write Hebrews, but... As we've studied more of the text and the context and that sort of thing, that is much more in doubt. In fact, most people reject that Paul wrote the letter to the Hebrews. So the Belgic has been amended to account for that, at least in our federation. So issues like that do come up where we learn more about the scriptures. We come to the realization that what has been confessed previously is incorrect or inadequate. Now, that said... In order for us to amend or to confess anew, it needs to be demonstrated, first off, that the existing confessions are inadequate, that they don't already address these issues sufficiently, and that by doing so, we're not going to introduce other issues or other problems. So, like, you could look, for instance, at the mainline churches in the United States, so churches like the PCUSA, They've added several new confessions on top of the Westminster Standards. The problem is 
those confessions have often served as a platform for the liberalizing trajectory of that church, for the embracing of progressive social agendas, for instance, the ordination of women, their stances on homosexuality and other related issues. They've confessed to move the church away from biblical truth. And that's a problem, and that's certainly something that we need to be aware of and something we need to try to avoid. Or, for instance, you know, we're in the United Reformed Churches. The United Reformed Churches exist primarily because of a separation from the Christian Reformed Church over issues of women's ordination. So now if you go look at the CRC version of the Belgic Confession, it has been amended in those articles talking about church officers to be gender neutral. Now, in addition, we could also perhaps look at in the uh, RCA, the Reformed Churches of America, which comes from a different background than that of the CRC and URC. They've been around in America much longer, but they actually have a, a fourth form of their confession in the Belhar Confession. You know, this is making particular statements in the denunciation of apartheid. It was uh, written in South Africa in response to that issue, but it has been accepted in the American churches. Part of a, a question of, you know, if that's legitimate to accept something that was fairly particular to a context of one nation, you know, then brings up the question, if the Belhar Confession was uh, adequate as a statement in the context of South Africa as regards the issue of slavery and racism in that country, in America, should we accept that as a statement regarding or even as a confession about racial issues here? Or can we not look towards Article 9 or Article 14 in the Belgian Confession about the statements of Imago Day and what it says about man. Those things aren't so specific to answer some of the questions we might have today, and yet, can we not look to them as a general guideline and offer comments or even just overtures without making a statement confessionally binding? There's a lot of nuance in this discussion. Uh, likewise, uh, you brought up Article 36 on the civil government with the Belgian Confession. There's some Reformed churches that are going to disagree with how our tradition in the URC has answered these things and, and made the revision. Some want to hold to the unrevised versions. There's still a nuance in there in which uh, there has to be some further discussion and things that prohibit some unity amongst even the Reformed churches on these topics. Yet, I think it's important to point out at least a lot of the big, big, big quintessential baseline foundational doctrines, all Christian churches agree on and must agree on. And this we have not then just confessions, but also the creeds of the church. We agree on much of the doctrine that should promote unity rather than cause further infighting. And so then on these other matters, perhaps these more contextually specific matters, say, for instance, you know, we're not saying that racism is not a problem, but for instance, it may be a different kind of problem now than it was in the 1960s. It may be a different kind of problem in the United States as it was in South Africa. Confessions, to reiterate what's already been said, confessions are the matter of the faith once for all delivered. And this is a faith that's confessed uh, by all believers in all times around the world. So if we're dealing with more questions of situational ethics and the application of that doctrine, then yeah, this is perhaps more the realm of pastoral advice, 
study committees. There are ways for the churches to look at and study and speak to these issues and even do so and even make decisions that may be binding on the particular church in the context, but done through other means than confessions, uh, the addition of or the changing of confessions. Sometimes a different sort of measure is more appropriate. In fact, usually a different sort of measure is more appropriate because these sort of overtures and studies and these sort of things happen rather regularly, whereas revisions to the confessions are and should be quite rare. With that said, you know, I think we could also point out that uh, in the context of the Reformation of the 16th and 17th century, there's actually a lot more confessions that have been put out by these reform bodies than we might think. In the very least, I mean, you could pull up a recent publication, or at least a somewhat recent uh, in the past couple of years, compiled by uh, James Dennison on a four-volume work titled The Reformed Confessions of the 16th and 17th Centuries in English Translation. These compile, I think, over 120, uh, I think it's like almost 130 confessions that have been put out in a nearly 200-year period. So it's not just the six, you know, the three forms of unity and the Westminster Standards, but actually much, much, much more, and many that were written in a particular national context in response to uh, local controversies. Uh, so just to reiterate uh, and reinforce the point, just because uh, confession, catechism, or whatnot has been written doesn't mean the entirety of the church necessarily has to adopt it to be in full unity. That said, perhaps there could also be, not today, but a way for discussion, just, just for everyone to, to consider how to respond to current issues with critical race theory and uh, controversies regarding transgenderism, homosexuality, in marriage, uh, and if there's a place for Reformed churches in America and Europe to consider writing statements on sexuality to be distributed by the church at large, there's always work to be considered, there's always work to be done, and uh, we are to always be reforming. And if in time churches unanimously agree to adopt a confession that was written in response to these things, then, uh, you know, so be it, but let the church make that decision and not us individually. So we've been talking a lot about the Reformed Confessions, but that isn't where this began. If you look near the bottom of page 103, Bavink goes into a bit of a discussion on what's known as the ecumenical creeds. Ecumenical meaning those held by all the church in all ages. So for instance, even the Roman Catholics hold to these. The first one being the Apostles' Creed. The translation here of Bavinck says the Apostolic Creed or the Twelve Articles. Here it is said it's the oldest of the Christian creeds. You've probably heard it. You may very well recite it in your church. In our church we recite it most weeks, either that or the Nicene Creed or something to that effect. And it's one of the earliest of the church, going perhaps as early as the second century. When it says the 12 articles, it is referring to each one, basically each of the statements that that creed makes. And what we see in this creed is the essential contents of the faith. I mean, there's more detail on each of those articles that can be and needs to be brought out, but it is, in sum, the Christian faith. You brought up in that regard with confessions that in our three forms, particularly the Heilberg and then the Belgian Confession, uh, these things are in part expositions on the Apostles' Creed, so further outlining what is being said there. 
Right. The Heidelberg does it explicitly, the Belgic more implicitly, but mm-hmm. is drawing from these themes laid out in the Apostles' Creed. Right. I think the Creed's just a complete work of genius when you think about it. I mean, Bavink says it was a short summary of the great facts on which Christianity rests, and as such, it continues to be the common ground and an unbreakable bond of unity of all Christendom. And so in this is this way, this is how even Roman Catholics and Reformed or Lutheran and Eastern Orthodox and Anglican, so on and so forth, can find at least some common ground on which we all rest. In history, though, there was need for further statements of further confessions being put out, if you will, in, again, response to other controversies. So you had the Council of Nicaea, the definition of Chalcedon, and the Athanasian Creed coming up as statements on the Trinity and on the person of Jesus Christ as both true man and true God. You know, the churches were responding, uh, as Bavink says on page 104, on one part to the Jewish contention that Jesus is God. You know, they want to say, hey, he's just a man, he's a good guy, maybe he's a prophet, a great rabbi, but he's not God. There is only one God. This Jesus Christ guy is just a nut. You know, on the other side, you had pagans, those coming from a Greek and Roman context, especially that were saying, well, Jesus is one of the gods. He is a man favored by the gods, or he's even some kind of spirit that takes on the appearance of man, but isn't actually in actual human flesh. So the church is uh, making statements against these and then those even within its own congregations that were trying to teach uh, variations of the pagan view or whatnot. So these statements are coming up then as rejections of these things. And yet there's also then some disagreement. For instance, the Greek Orthodox aren't going to go and understand how this Holy Spirit relates to the Father and the Son in the same way that the Western Church has articulated it. You know, they're going to say that the Holy Spirit proceeds only from the Father and not the Son, uh, whereas the Western will say that uh, the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. And as Reformed, we have followed the Western tradition in that. So, for instance, in the Belgic Confession, this idea of double procession is confessed there. So now we brought up Rome and how we agree with Rome and the Apostles' Creed. But again, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably Reformed, but or in the very least, you're probably a Protestant and have some kind of idea of problems in the Roman Catholic Church that especially had come to the foreground and developed throughout the medieval period. With the battles against paganism outside the church and with sort of Neoplatonic ideas in the church in the first couple hundred years of the church had started to wane, you know, the church is getting some time to sit and think and being some comfort, a place of privilege and prestige, as Bobbing says on page 105. And it starts to develop in uh, some aspects of its polity, or I'd say develop, but really it starts to warp a bit and look a bit hierarchical. And from this, a lot of different strange views start to manifest. But Bobbing gives us three good starting places of how to assess the issues that came up in the medieval church. Right, he essentially finds three major problems and three major faults in the Roman Catholic approach during the Middle Ages that ultimately would give rise to the Reformation. So the first of these, he says, the Catholic Church raised tradition 
more and more to the plane of an independent rule of faith, standing next to and sometimes even over against the Holy Scriptures. So you have in Rome the rise, for instance, of the papacy, the Pope. And with the Pope, you suddenly have this one singular leader over all the church. And then below him, you have this hierarchy of bishops. So instead of the biblical model set forth, where you have elders, ministers, apostles, They come together and as equals make decisions for the church. It becomes this hierarchical thing. And ultimately you have the Pope making singularly decisions that affect the whole church. And the Pope viewed as having singularly the office of the keys to the kingdom. So he can decide who is the church, who is not. And he could even wield that power against entire nations for political purposes. So there was this thing known as an interdict that would sometimes happen if the Pope wasn't happy with a particular king or a particular nation he would decide to withhold the sacraments from that entire country not just the particular individuals he was upset with but the whole country to apply political pressure this idea of authority revesting in a singular person that has run amok you also have on the other end too the compilation of canon law based on various practices and thoughts and you know expositions on doctrine that were developing in the uh, Middle Ages, these rulings and decisions started to be put together as basically a reference book. They're kind of like a, a Talmud in some manners. They function as a second authority or second law by which the church can appeal to. And in many ways, these traditional rulings start to take precedence over scripture itself as the role of authority. And it became kind of a thing of like, oh, well, this is just the way that the church has always done it. And to be fair, this is something that's uh, not, you know, isolated to Rome, but we could find in Protestant churches today. You know, sometimes you could also get uh, just one single powerful figure, perhaps in a congregational church, a senior pastor that just totally overpowers everyone, you know, and his, his word, whatever he says, is what goes for others, you know, the idea of like, you know, hey, this is just the way that we've always done it. And we're going to keep doing it this way, even if it's not biblical or necessary to do in that church. Maybe it's taken up too much resources or time or whatnot. It just kind of becomes de facto and can subvert the ministry of word and sacrament. Or maybe even perhaps you could see this in evangelical churches where like there's ministers who write books, these celebrity pastors or whatever, and... While no one would say we're holding those equal to or above Scripture, perhaps de facto we take more stock in these teachings of man than of Scripture. Yeah, I mean, could be a legitimate charge sometimes if someone says, hey, you're, you're following Calvin as your only authority. Yeah, or Bavink. Or Bavink. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that's it for today's Bavcast. Uh, and we're never putting another episode Good, out. Goodbye forever. No. Goodbye. So this first issue that comes up then is what I'd say then, the issue of authority. In the second place, we then have uh, the issue of what Bavink says, if you're looking at the page uh, 106, ability, or I say the issue of righteousness. Basically, how is one saved? Yeah. And is God's grace really free or do you have to, in some measure, merit it? Do you have to make a decision for Christ? Do you have to make a good choice? Do you have to keep his favor? Do you need to, you know, try to push for some kind of second blessing? All these things are versions of trying to justify yourself. And it's been a very long standing issue in the church. Put another way, and Bob Inc. even does so here, what is the relationship between the law and the gospel? Are we obeying to obtain righteousness by which we are saved? 
Or do we obey because we are saved? The former being the position of Rome, the latter being the position of the Reformed. And he even reminds us, you know, this was the same kind of debate that was taking place between uh, Augustine and the early church father and the early British monk Pelagius. And this debate has been virtually perennial throughout church history. You know, Rome basically came to say in the Middle Ages that God is going to give some kind of credit for if you're just being a good person in general, you're trying to live morally, not kill anyone, this kind of stuff. But you need to work for it in some measure. And whatever you work for, whatever you work towards, especially in lines of, you know, what the church demands as being really righteous, like good example being monks and cloistering themselves off, living as much of a liturgical life as you can. Uh, if you're doing all this stuff, God is going to credit to you whatever you're lacking. The issue is you're not going to be able to pay off this enormous debt that you have as a sinner in this life. And uh, no matter what good work you do, you're pretty much going to have to end up paying off the rest of your debt in purgatory. Yeah, a couple million years there will fix you up good. Wow, way to assume my depravity. Well, it usually isn't. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the actual numbers are, but I've... Yeah. Could be a couple thousand. Talk about millions of years and whatever. But hey, it's eternity. So really, what's a couple million years? But, you know, and it it does raise to this issue of something. This doctrine of purgatory is something that rose out of something other than biblical teaching. It rose out of the tradition. It rose out of man's innovation and out of authority. Because in a lot of ways, the purgatory or the threat of what comes without whatever particular obedience is sought was a way that this authority was allowed to perpetuate itself. You have to be in the church and do all the things that go with being in the church, even if they're established by tradition and not scripture, or you will not be saved. Again, we still see shades of this even in modern Christianity. If you're looking at page 106 and that last big paragraph, Bobby's talking about uh, what we call condign and congruent merit, stating, you know, the works of keeping the regular commandments as they apply to everyone and the works aimed at satisfying the counsels added to the law by Christ, such as celibacy, poverty, and obedience. I would say there's still a good bit of Christians, we could say uh, those of the pietist strand, moralistic legal strands that think to be a, a good, proper Christian, you need to actually go and give away every single bit of your possessions. You know, you need to go and refrain and abstain from every single possible means of condemnation of worldly amusements. You might avoid marriage, even if it's not something that's been given to you to do. Yeah, we have a little moralist in all of us. Uh, you know, we, we're all thinking we have to have some kind of almost monastic life and cutting off and escaping from the world or else we're going to be tainted and, and not be as holy as we might otherwise. You know, and so for some Christians, especially those of college age, maybe they're raised in something a little bit of a Christian bubble and then they go off to even a Christian college, you know, not just a state university or whatever. And they're confronted for the first time with, perhaps a little too much liberty and they go off the rails or they're confronted by some uh, challenging teachings and they think, oh, my, my Christianity is not substantial enough or, you know, Christianity doesn't matter. And then they go completely lawless, you know, so there's, there's effects of this all over. There's this idea that we have to basically live all like a monk or something. And that takes us also to the third place uh, that Bobby raises about the medieval church, a distinction between a clergy and laity that was raised up. Right. And this comes with this idea of priesthood, as Bobby goes on to say, it is not the believers in general, but the clergy who are in the proper sense, the priests. 
So this idea, this really rather revolutionary idea of the New Testament of the priesthood of all believers, Rome completely lost the plot on that. Instead of believing the truth of Scripture about how all believers have direct access to God and have mediation through Christ, the one mediator between God and man, Rome regressed back into this idea of a priesthood where you need human mediation. You can't approach God directly yourself. You have to have a priest. You have to confess to the priest and the priest take it on your behalf. You have to have the priest who goes and represents the sacrifice of Christ Um, in the giving of the Mass, the giving of the Eucharist. Like I said, really losing the plot of the New Testament as it relates to the people of God. Remember, some of that didn't just pop up overnight, too. Uh, It was development for hundreds of years. Bobbing makes note there on page 107, that first big paragraph. I'm talking about how in the New Testament, you know, elder and uh, bishop are interchangeable terms for the same office bearers, for basically the elder, if you will, or even minister. You see that, for instance, in 1 Peter chapter 5, when Peter gives his exhortation to elders. So the word that's usually elder is presbyteros, and Peter addresses them as presbyteros, but then he tells them to basically practice episkopos, which is the word that's usually taken to mean bishop. So you have the same guys in the same offices doing the same thing, and they are these interchangeable terms. And you could even see this then after the close of the New Testament canon, by the time of the letter of First Clement to Corinthians, which could be somewhere anywhere between the 90s of the first century uh, up until maybe about 120. But even there several decades after Peter's own lifetime. I believe it's in chapter uh, 44 of that letter, an equivocation of elder and bishop. By 180, he started to get something of a rise in prominence of the word bishop, developing to something of a a particular office. Up until that point, a bishop in the second century uh, may have been something akin to a, basically the, the first among equals, say as a president or a chairman of council in the meetings of ecclesiastical assembly. Maybe for Presbyterian friends, might say a moderator, not to be a little anachronistic here, but point being, there was even then still some kind of equality in the office, even if there was a primacy in recognition as this first among equals. But within the next couple hundred years, perhaps around the uh, late fourth century, the bishop started becoming his own thing as an overseer of other pastors. You had the development of an episcopacy. This is eventually developed into even then a uh, what may be a papacy by the 6th century with Gregory the Great. We're saying that this took like 500 years for this kind of development. And even longer into the form we see now because as Bobbing mentions, the actual official declaration of papal infallibility didn't happen until the First Vatican Council of 1870. So we're only talking about 150 years ago. It was maybe something more held to in practice, but it wasn't officially declared until the 19th century. And, you know, even Gregory the Great that I mentioned a a second ago here, even he who was regarded as the first pope stated anyone who calls himself the uh, vicar of Christ on earth is, in fact, Antichrist. So there's clearly a difference even then of how this bishop of Rome or pope was being seen in the late 5th century, early 6th century to the 19th century in present, like you just said. Right. And even the actions of the 19th century and the the ultramontanist movement that led to 
Vatican I, it was largely a push against modernism and basically the Roman Catholic Church consolidating power over and against modernism. Yeah, so yet again, another development in that. There's even a number of Roman Catholic scholars you'll find in the 19th and 20th century that would even state Peter wasn't the Pope in his lifetime, basically. But over time, he is recognized with the insight of canon law and tradition that he was functioning as first pope. But they would say the papal office didn't exist in his lifetime. Which again, to hear Peter's own words on it, you could look again at 1 Peter 5, and he addresses the elders as a fellow elder. Peter saw himself as an elder. He didn't see himself as a super elder or a ruler among elders. He viewed himself as an equal. And with all this, though, you know, Peter would recognize that even with those of equal overseers, even as himself as an apostle, there's still someone else who is head of all of them. It's Christ who is the ruler, Christ to whom all the offices of the church belong. The the prophet, priest, and king is stored up in him. He alone is our mediator. He alone is righteous and gives us the invitation of righteousness, whereas we are unable to save ourselves. And it's Christ, the word, who is our sole authority. And this is the remarkable thing then that would occur with the Reformation. Because you may be asking by now, well, that's a wonderful history lesson on Roman Catholicism, but how does this relate to our topic at hand of confessions? And Bavink gets us there. And that this is the environment that the Reformation was reacting to. And sort of getting back at that often made critique that confessions are elevating tradition and history above Scripture, Bavink is saying no. The confessions were part of how the authority and the primacy of the word of God was recovered in the Reformation. We are articulating this is what the Bible teaches over and against these things that Rome has added to and these things that Rome has corrupted. So like you can read the Belgic Confession and the two main adversaries that Guido de Bray addressed in the Belgic Confession were the Roman Catholics, of course, and then the Anabaptists. He's saying, no, what they're saying is wrong. Here is what the scripture teaches about these issues. In this way, the Reformation also didn't you know, just appear overnight either. There was a remarkable development and preservation of truth throughout the Middle Ages, where you had theologians recognizing what the Word of God was saying and pushing against formations of what we would say now are Roman Catholic dogma, like transubstantiation, their views on the Lord's Supper, things regarding the papacy. You know, there, there were, if you will, proto-reformers, others coming forward trying to reform the church. There were even secular movements in the humanities, you know, the development of appealing to classical literature, ancient languages, and working with original languages, that would ultimately lead to a method being applied to the text to look at what the text of scripture itself says for itself without the interpretation of the church, without the interpretation of canon law, and without the interpretation of a pope. There was a whole slew of developments throughout history in which maybe sometimes we talk about the medieval period as like a dark age, or maybe we some Protestants look at church history and say, hey, there was uh, the apostles, the early church. There's a couple really good early theologians like Augustine. Then a bunch of bad stuff happened. And then boom, we have Luther and Calvin. But you know, God was sovereignly working all things in the development of history. He was preserving his word. And he was making means for the church to then take what was said in the word and raise it up and over 
the medieval church as a light to his people to, if you will, underscore, you know, where their salvation comes from, where our help comes from. And, you know, even today, continuing on in the spirit of the Reformation, we still look to that, not only to go and, you know, be as a, a rule for righteousness on Sunday, but to then go out into every corner of the earth to bring the gospel uh, in evangelism, you know, to go in, take him into every single aspect of our lives. This is sort of the distinction that Bavink makes near the end of this chapter between Luther, who was concerned almost entirely with the matter of justification, and the more holistic approach to reform taken by Zwingli and Calvin and its effect on society more broadly and the world more broadly. Yeah, it's not something that we go and say, hey, this is my Bible and it's just me and my Bible. We don't just say, hey, I have a personal relationship with Jesus, but that Jesus has complete authority over everything as head of the church and as the sustainer of uh, creation itself. And this is why our Reformed confessions are not concerned merely with issues of salvation and soteriology. It's why they do touch issues like the church and the civil government and things of that nature, because it is what God's word says to the things that it says it to, which is more than just our justification. To bring it back full circle then, Andrew, can we go and look to the confessions to consider some of the hot button issues of our day and the controversies, say, on, on sexuality and race and whatnot? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And yes, we should. We can look at their expositions of the law. We can look at what they teach us, for instance, about marriage Um, One of the things I appreciate about the Westminster Standards, even being in the URC, is what it teaches about marriage and how it offers practical and biblical guidance for dealing with issues in marriage. We teach these things to our children. We teach these things to each other and to ourselves. We use them in our worship. We use them in our lives. We use them in our workplaces and even in uh, how we consider political issues presently. So with that, we've reached the end of chapter 8. It's not a real long chapter, only about 10 pages, but gives us some good things, some important things to think about, to consider the relationship between Scripture and confession and the church. But we're out of time now, so we're going to go ahead and sign off for today. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. We hope you've learned something. We hope you've been edified. You can reach out to us, bovcast at gmail.com or on our social media. If you have any questions, comments, advice, want to send us money. Or just things. Just want to say, hi, how's it going? Just want to talk. We don't have very many friends, so, you know, we've got room for more. We don't have one single friend. We're not even friends with each other, honestly. Like, we'll, we'll sign off this call and then we will not speak to each other until the next time. It's true. We don't even uh, plan anything before we start recording. We just kind of jump on and and do it, if you can't tell. We actually did do that this time, but that's not what we usually do. (laughs) We did do it this time, but you know what? I I, I had fun, and I hope that it was beneficial. So, there's something we're supposed to do at the end here. Um, What is that? If we had a a script or show notes, then it would probably say something about tote zines. Actually, I don't think we've ever put that on the notes. We haven't, but... It just happens organically. Tote zines! It's organic tote zines. Yeah. USDA certified organic (laughs) tote zines. Non-GMO. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. 
For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.